Welcome to another episode of Connecting the Dot, Dots podcast. I'm H.F. Mason, a general surgeon and chief medical officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital DeSoto and chief quality officer for the Baptist system. And hey, everybody, I'm Jake Lancaster. I'm an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. Well, today, folks, we are so excited to have Dr. Richard Shannon as our as our guest on the podcast. Dr. Shannon is the chief quality officer for Duke Health in Durham, North, North Carolina. Uh, Dr. Shannon, welcome and, and tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, HF and Jake, thanks for having me. Um, uh, great to be with you and uh, congratulations really on the success of your podcast. So I, I'm a, a cardiologist, still do a little general cardiology. Uh, before I took on administrative roles, did a little more heart failure and transplant, but that uh, that's become much more sophisticated um, than than I recall. Uh, but you know, have uh, spent my life uh, mostly in academic medicine, and um, you know, was the chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, then the EVP for Health Affairs at UVA, and and now uh, over overseeing quality and and safety at uh, at Duke. Um, I, I frame my career in those 20 years because it really was 20 years ago when I first started getting interested in quality and safety. I didn't start out that way. I wasn't cut from that cloth. But um, when I when I first started to get into this, it has completely changed my view of medicine and my career. Yeah. So we always like to ask when we have physicians on the program, you know, how they got into quality improvement, and so. We'd love to hear your story about, um, you know, your 20-year journey, it sounds like. Yeah, thanks. As I said, I was a sort of traditionally trained academic cardiologist. I ran a research lab, you know, as I said, did heart failure and transplant. Um, and then when I was in Pittsburgh, um, uh, there was a thing called the Allegheny Conference for all the hospitals around Pittsburgh. And I was at Allegheny General at the time as the chair of the Department of Medicine. And uh, the CEO called me one day and said, you know, this guy named Paul O'Neill is convening the Allegheny Conference and he wants mm -hmm. to talk about cardiac surgical outcomes. And our CEO said, and, you know, I don't want to go to that. And you, you know, all our data, you know, why don't you go to this meeting and, you know, and defend the honor of our institution and, uh, and our results. And I said, OK, you know, how hard can this be? The guy that's chairing the meeting is runs an aluminum company. And, you know, I'm a cardiologist, seen a lot of cardiac surgery. I know our data. So I went to the meeting and, you know, there in the room is Mr. O'Neill with some of the heads of businesses in Pittsburgh, Mellon Bank, U.S. Steel was there then, um, you know, and and he's sitting at the head of the table and he started to, there's 13 so this, of us. So this was before he was Secretary of Treasury, I guess. I'm sorry. This was before it was a Treasury. He still was at, Alco yep. it was at Alcoa. There's so uh, yep. thir 13 of us sitting around the room and he goes around and says, you know, um, the cardiac surgical outcomes in Pittsburgh in the region are really not that good. And he goes, I want to hear from each one of you what's going on. And he said, and the next thing I want to tell you is there's actually more open heart programs in Pittsburgh than there are Jiffy Lubes. So I'd like to understand why we have so many and why our results are less than optimal. So around we go and, you know, each of us sort of told our story, you know, we're taking sick care of sicker patients and patients from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. And, you know, we've had trouble with this problem or that problem. And he gets, you know, and I'm telling him the whole story and he looks at me and says, you know, Dr. Shannon, I'm really not interested in your excuses. I'm interested in what you're doing every day to get better. 
And, um, you know, it struck me that what I was doing was reciting a bunch of excuses. But he knew more about open, open heart surgery than I knew about aluminum, I'll tell you that. And it began, this was back in 1999, before he went to Treasury. It began what it was a 20-year partnership. He took me under his wing. Um, wow. He took me to Alcoa to see the Alcoa business system. When I would tell him, you know, I go back to my doctors, Mr. O'Neill, and they say they don't make aluminum, they take care of leukemics, you know, he took me, you know, he took me to all different places to show me complex problems. And then he came over to our hospital and walked the floors and showed us what quality and safety looked like from the eyes of industry. So that was a moment that totally changed my view of the world. Um, and I really owe it to a guy from industry, Paul O'Neill, who, um, you know, really opened my eyes to what was possible. That, that's a that's a great story. Um you know, you mentioned that it was in 1999, and probably, you know, I graduated medical school in 1993, and, you know, quality was not even really something that we discussed or talked about. Uh, and and what, what do you what do you think it was in the healthcare industry that 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 what was the light bulb moment, in your opinion, or, or the aha moment when we when we finally realized, well, we're not as we're not quite as good as we really think we are. Yeah, I think that um, uh, the there were a couple of things. One, um, it was very clear coming out of the, the Balanced Budget Act when we started moving to DRGs and organizations started to merge that they weren't really paying attention to the quality of, of care. And we were finding increasingly um, these incredible stories, right? I remember the story of Josie King, you know, this young baby who um, was taken by her mom, Sorrel King, to, to Hopkins and uh, was accidentally given a drug overdose and died. This enormous and Sorrel King became this incredible national figure for transparency and understanding human error when it occurred in medicine. And she lit up the world with the story of, of her young daughter and what had transpired. And there were more people like that, individuals whose family members had suffered bloodstream infections from catheters. And so there was this hue and cry from patients coupled with, you know, the Institute of Medicine issuing this report on crossing the colony chasm into errors human. So I think back in the 1990s and early 2000s, there was this awakening born of these episodes, but then the clarion call from these, you know, organizations that said, hey, you know, we really ought to do better than this. So I really date the modern quality era in healthcare to those events, which I do think were were uh, initiated because of these really tragic cases that really awakened us all to, hey, you know, we ought to be able to do better than this. Um, so that, that's my sense. Uh, but I think if you go back to 20, the year 2000 or so, that's when you really begin to see people take off. Now, I would say, guys, fast forwarding 20 years, right? Where are we? Um, you know, I think what's happened is that really clarion call has sort of gotten di disrupted. I think what quality has become is a litany of these public reports, right? Yeah. Leapfrog, CMS, Best Hospital, the Lown Institute now has some report about how we do and the whole and consumer reports the whole conversation has shifted 
from improvement to this litany of measurement. Right? It is all a consumption of measurement. And I think if we spent less time measuring and more importantly, spend time measuring things that matter to doctors and patients and not these public reports, I, and we spent more time on improvement, we'd be further ahead. I, I, you know, when I was at UVA, we measured 484 measures reported to 12 different regulatory agencies, LeapFrog, all these things. We actually only worked on four or five things at a time, right? So, and, and it cost us like 13 or 14 million dollars a year to pull all this stuff together. And so mm. I would argue in 20 years, what's happened is quality has been usurped. It's now the domain, you know, it, it's measured in terms of insurance claims data. CMS doesn't look at clinical outcomes. They look at insurance claims outcomes. It's basically the measures are determined by payers and regulators, not by providers and patients. You guys know the, the records are all years out of date. I mean, if your CMS star rating today tells you what you were like in 2020, yeah. what good is that? That those, those measures are all blind to social determinants of health, which we are increasingly recognized as factors, and they're completely oblivious to race. And I would argue things like honor rolls perpetuate disparities because they basically say here are the only 20 places in the country that are worth going. And people of color, underrepresented people, people from lower socioeconomic classes can't fly to the Mayo Clinic. So I think we've really lost this. What we're trying to work on is can we as providers get this back by looking at clinical outcomes data, registry data? So there are a lot of great professional registries. NISQIP, you know, HF, you're a surgeon, um, you know, 800 yep. or 900 hospitals, professionally adjudicated, clinically risk-adjusted outcomes. My, my field cardiology, there's the Society for Thoracic Surgeons, STS, STS and, yeah. and, and, and NCDR, the National Cardiac Data Registry. These are professional clinical data registries. And in our place, doctors want to know that information. They don't mm -hmm. really care about LeapFrog. So I think we've got to get this back and put this back in the hand of the profession. Use our professional societies. You know, the hospital is the, the site of the hospital medicine, great clinical data registries. And then, then, of course, you know, you could begin to look at things more carefully through race and ethnicity, and you could begin to add in issues of social determinants. So I really think 20 years into this, it's time for us to take this back. Because I think we're losing the interest of the people we need to engage most. Doctors are tired of reports that make no sense. So yeah. I'm on a crusade to say, when are we going to take this back? When are we going to decide that we understand what quality is and that we think these clinical registries are the better way to look at our performance? Now, I'm really glad you said that. One thing you didn't talk uh, enough about, which always comes up anytime we have a quality meeting or, or something related to a quality measure, is uh, documentation. Um, you know, we put... It, it seems like the organizations that do the best in quality are the ones that have the biggest teams that are able to get the most uh, diagnoses or problems for each patient, get those uh, the biggest clinical um, uh, documentation specialists. Um, they have the biggest teams that are able to do that. 
And that's really the key differentiator between a, a tier one and a you know, tier two is how well do they document? And that really has nothing to do with quality. <laughs> No, it, it, it absolutely not. You know, I, I tell the story. This was actually back when Viziant was UHC. But, um, you know, this is when I was back at Penn and we were starting on this journey, you know, and, and we would see our observed to expected mortality ratio approach one. You know, so it looked like, you know, we, we were we were getting worse. So we wouldn't focus on the actual mortality. We'd go hire more coders to figure mm-hmm. out how to get the the expected mortality up. Same number of people died, right? Yep. But we. this is the teaching to the test that claims data drives us to, right? I mean, what you just said about, you know, coders and documentation is all about billing. It's not about quality. I would argue the measures that you see in, in NISQIP, the 92 core measures in the National Quality Surgical Improvement Project, are things that are relevant, like your creatinine or your you know, um, uh, uh, PFTs prior to surgery or, you know, what your last cardiac catheterization showed, stuff that arguably you would say are real factors to a doctor that would, would, you know, would motivate you to get to better understanding and improvement. So, you know, we've done this test here. HF, you can appreciate this as a surgeon. You know, we showed showed our surgeons, like, here's your performance in, you know, U.S. News, here's your performance in NISQIP. Which is the more important piece of information to drive your improvement? 100% of them say NISQIP. NISQIP, for sure. You know, the other part of this is in the definitions, right? We were just talking about this this morning. So when you use claims data to answer things like um, PSI, you know, patient safety indicator questions like PSI 12, um, death following a surgical complication. What happens when you take that billing record is all you got to see are three things, a death, a surgical procedure, and a complication. But it's a, it, the, the, that doesn't mean there's a cause and effect relationship, yeah, right? No correlation. Exactly. This is crazy. So, you know, we look at our PSI 12s and then we ask surgeons, is the complication or the surgical procedure have anything to do with the patient dying? And the answer often is no. We, we had a case, you know, of, a, of someone with hepatic encephalopathy, really profound liver disease. This was back at UVA. The patient had a pleural effusion and we, you know, did a thoracentesis and the thoracentesis was bloody. No surprise, fulminant hepatic failure, coagulopathy. So the person documents, you know, thoracentesis, bloody, pleural fluid, you know, and three weeks later, the guy dies of liver failure. And this is a PSI 12 because he had a procedure. Exactly. It was said to be bloody. And the next thing you know, he dies of something totally unrelated. And, mm-hmm. and you know, the, the, the doctors are looking and saying, what do you mean? And, of course, the coders say, oh, can't violate the definition. Can't mess yep. with the definition. It's we see that crazy. a lot. Of, we, we have given this thing away. We see that a lot with patients in the unit who get a tracheostomy for an unrelated problem. And then it's 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 coded out as a death after a surgical complication. It, it is kind of ridiculous and crazy. Um, wanted to shift gears a little bit. You, you know, health healthcare is a highly, highly complex system. You know, Skip likes to use the term socio-technical uh, system. It's probably the the most 
complex system out there when it comes to that. As, as a leader of, of a big uh, organization such as Duke Health, how, how do you create the culture of improvement? I mean, when you're dealing with, with you know, us physicians and you know how we can be and nurses and administrators and financial guys, what, what, what's the secret sauce for creating that culture? And so, I know that's a hard question. Yeah, well, well, but it's it's really been, you know, the the 20 year journey I've been on, because when when I came under Paul O'Neill's tutelage, he taught me the lean management system. Um, and, you know, challenged me to think about the application of lean management principles to healthcare. And, you know, when people you say lean, people automatically think about Toyotas and stuff like that. And it's true. Those guys perfected making cars using lean management principles. And, you know, I would say to Paul, look, you know, as I said, leukemics are different than Toyotas. Um, you know, so, as you said, a little more complicated. But the reality is what lean really is all about is people development and continuous improvement. So let me take the two, people development. It's remarkable to me in this 20-year journey how often people, our, our team members, our frontline team members, nurses, doctors, interns, they actually know what to do. They know why they need to do it. They don't know how to do it. The systems in which they work are not supportive of the outcomes they try to get. You know, they don't have supplies they need. They don't have cooperation from consulting services. There is not a systematic approach to care delivery. And consequently, people end up really having to do individual heroics often to sort of make the clinical outcomes as best as they can. So we, we here at Duke and at UVA and Penn before this, um, you know, have really tried to develop these lean management systems. Now we call them model areas. And what happens is we go into a clinical area, I'll give you the example here, our stroke unit, 35 beds, all post-stroke patients, you know, transferred from all kinds of places, you know, sick people, right? Lots of disability. And on a stroke unit, you might imagine there were a lot of falls, there were a lot of catheter-related UTIs because they had neurogenic bladders, you know, a third of them had central line. So it was a pretty high-risk place. And, you know, people are trying to do their work every day, but the system basically conspired against them. So the nurses said, you know, um, that the nurses would be deployed to their patients. And we said to them, well, how do you want to do this differently? We look, we asked them, how do you want to do this differently? And they, they basically said, we would rather take an extra patient individually and have a resource nurse who could back us up in case we had a problem, than basically have a few, have a, have a, a lower staff ratio. We said, well, that makes sense. You're not asking for more nurses. You just want to redesign the work. Unbelievable improvement, right? 40% reduction in harms on a stroke unit because they had a backup that didn't add stuff. They just said, we would like agency in designing our work. We said, go to it. We asked the physicians about rounding. They said, my God, it takes us four and a half hours to round. We said, well, what would make it easier? Well, they said, actually, if we knew who the physical therapists were going to see today, we could figure out who to prioritize because stroke care all occurs in the first 24 hours. After that, it's all recovery. 
So we basically brought in the physical therapist and say, hey, when you come to work in the morning, just check in with the team to see who they think needs the therapy. And suddenly rounds are 45 minutes shorter, right? Mm -hmm. The physical therapists are actually going to the patient's room and the patient's there because the doctors haven't sent them for a head scan because they didn't know what the physical therapists were going to do. All of this is manageable if you go to the place where care is delivered and engage the people that do the work. But when you sit on Mount Everest and start handing things down to people, you know, nothing gets done. So I will tell you the application of these ideas, people development and continuous improvement are widely applicable in clinical care with tremendous outcomes. Um, and we've yet to see a place where when this is developed, that the outcomes aren't better and people aren't happier. Yeah, that, those are great points. You know, go to the Gimba and hear from the frontline yeah. staff. Um, you know, one of the things you discussed earlier is, you know, some of the current problems with the quality movement and how physicians and, and hospital leaders uh, don't have control of it. And we've lost control to, you know, insurance companies, coding, billing, others to that are kind of driving the momentum now. And you started to talk about how we could take it back. Um, tell us, tell us what you're doing maybe to, to take quality back to the physicians. Yeah. So, um, first of all, I want to point out, I don't know if you saw this this morning, but um, it's sort of related to this conversation of public reporting. You know, Yale and Harvard just pulled out yeah. of U.S. news with respect to their law school reports. Right now, they're the top two law schools in the country, so they have no reason to complain. Right. But they said this is baloney. This isn't true. And so I think you're beginning to see entities say, what is this? So I. I Stay tuned, because I think, you know, there will be a movement within healthcare that says this is not an effective way to drive improvement. Yeah. Um, so what we're doing is really trying to pivot to clinical registry data. So we're part of NISQIP um, and we use clinical outcomes data in NISQIP as the foundation for working with our surgeons to drive improvement. We don't feed them. Uh, CMS data. We don't feed them loud data. We don't feed them consumer reports data. We give them clinical data. We said, look, last six months, here's the mortality rate compared to expected. Here's the morbidity rates. Looks like urology, a little uptick. Let's get to work and figure that out. Looks a lot better in thoracics. And, you know, lo and behold, over time, you create these kind of top quartile performances because surgeons believe the data. Now, the challenge with public with with professional data registries is right now a lot of it's manual and that's expensive. But I'll tell you, there are natural language processing tools that are coming along that could immediately take the 92 elements in this quip and put them in a, a registry form. Right. I mean, I think we should be close to automate this, but we are moving away from focusing the attention of our providers on these public reports to their clinical professional data registries because if we're engaged in them we ought to be using that data so that's the first step we're taking now it's still incomplete as i said so you know um durham i think you know like memphis has um a, a large part of our population that is relatively low socioeconomic status have limited access to care 
have not lived the healthiest lives, not for any of their own fault, but just the worlds and social circumstances we live in. So we're trying to now build um, opportunities to understand the contribution that social determinants have, social drivers, I call them, social drivers of health. I like, like to talk about them as determinants because that means like they can't shake them, but sure, social sure. drivers of health to say, okay, what's this contribution, you know, of not having food or being unemployed or being homeless? What what are those contributions to this result? And then similarly, using that to look at race and ethnicity. I don't think it's any longer acceptable to say some of our patients have excellent outcomes when some of our patients don't, right? So I think we should be transparent. But our clinicians are willing to have those conversations because it's clinical data. I think that's so so key. You know, that's as a as a provider, you know, we don't trust the data. That's that's half the problem. And and if you if if we don't if the providers don't trust the data that you're giving them, they're not going to be engaged to improve because they just think it's a big farce. Yeah, I mean, yep. we just talked about the vicissitudes that you know the the variants that you would get in in PSI 12, right? Just because a a, a coded insurance claim doesn't tell you cause and effect. Speaking of in insurers, though, some of them are using that publicly available quality data to determine prices for uh, your reimbursement rates for, for providers. Yeah. You know, how know, do we shift that conversation? Well, you know, th this is a further, you know, I think, illustration of how the process has been usurped. I mean, let's just stop for a second. Where in the history of medicine do you see insurance companies aligned with patients right so this idea that we are the holy grail we see the right and the wrong no you don't the fact of the matter is often the ways you reimburse drive some of the the you know the pejorative behaviors that we see the yeah coding the claim rather than worrying about the mortality, right? Exactly that kind of stuff. So, you know, this idea that somehow they are the knight in shining armor is is nonsensical. That having been said, we as we build this new clinical construct I'm talking about, we should invite our patients in. What matters to you? Yeah. You know, when, when we talk to, to, to um, you know, uh, uh, groups of, of consumers, you know, we say, what, what what matters to you if you come to Duke? You know, and you got to have an operation. Say, I'd like to know what my chance of dying is. I'd like to know what the complications are going to be. I'd like to know when I can go back to work. That's all they want to know. So if you could show them their risk-adjusted mortality in your hands, what your complication rates are, and begin to think about patient-reported outcomes, like when can I go to work, I think you capture back this story. But you know, it, it's going to be challenging because we have to live in that regulatory world. We can't just say, sorry, not going to report to CMS. And so we've got to figure out, you know, how can we um, we move into this new direction? I think the only way we're going to be able to do it is with more automation of clinical outcomes data. Right now, the manual extraction is just too expensive. So we're really working hard to think about how could we get this automated? I mean, you know, machine learning is just around the corner. So I really think once we get it automated, then you can start having these conversations with providers and with patients and say, you know, this is what we focus on. 
Well, Rick, Rick, we could sit here and we could talk all day, but uh, unfortunately, we're coming to the end of our time. It's been a great conversation, and uh, you know, I, I enjoy your passion. I enjoy uh, you know the things that you guys are doing at Duke, and and uh, we certainly hope you'll consider coming back on the podcast soon. Would love to, uh, HF. Thank you, and and thank you, Jake, and uh, have a wonderful Thanksgiving and. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. Thank you, I enjoyed it.